This is episode 35 of Freeze and Freedom for Tuesday, December 4th, 2012. Hi, I'm Karen Sandler. And I'm Bradley Kuhn. This is Free as in Freedom. So uh, you have an update from our last show to share? Oh, yeah. I just uh, wanted to mention that I wound up getting an email from Barnaby Jack, who had listened to the show. A friend had sent him a link. And um, and I did have a correction, <laughs> which is that uh, I think I was, uh, you know, I default to talking about my pacemaker in these discussions. But really, I my device is a pacemaker, but it's um, it's also a defibrillator. And it's for me, it's primarily a defibrillator, and it's the defibrillator shocks that are really at issue um, in in some of this work in in terms of delivering those very powerful shocks. Uh, pacemakers tend to, I mean, I actually don't know the 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 specs on the differences if you just a pacemaker, but I think it just delivers like a lower level um, pulse. So well, really that would make shocks. sense technologically mm-hmm. because if you're a pacemaker, it must have to do it every heartbeat, right? Yeah, and so it's a very small shock. Uh, it's very strategic. It's very like you know a rhythmic series of shocks to um, to control the pacing of the heart. My my defibrillator is also a pacemaker, so it tries to pace me before it shocks me. Um, but so so that was a, a, a one thing that I wanted to correct from from last time, and I hope that people don't misunderstand me. And that it's just so much easier to explain to say pacemaker because people know what that is than do, to say defibrillator. Do the pacemakers actually play um, the BG song "Staying Alive"? <laughs> um, they could. Well, I mean, that's the point. The, the, the point, because there's, that's the beats per minute. That's right. Did, did they teach people this in uh, CPR class? That when you're, uh, you're Wait, giving, what? You didn't know this? No. When they, one of the things, they tell people to remember how, uh, how frequently to do heart compressions during CPR, the beats per minute of the song Staying Alive, ironically, by the Bee Gees... Uh, or not, or neg- negative, not ironically, fittingly, I guess, uh, is the same beats per minute of most humans' hearts. Was that intentionally done? I don't know, but... I really want to sing that now. Okay, but go ahead. No, uh, maybe, maybe, but, maybe after. <laughs> <laughs> but they, 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 that's actually for people who have trouble making sure they have the compressions in the right frequency. Uh, they tell people to sing Staying Alive in your head. Because the ah-ah-ah part? I'm not sure which part. They didn't teach me this when I took CPR, so I guess it's the rhythm. I don't think rhythm. I'm really certified anymore. I just uh, took an infant CPR class. How'd you do that? <laughs> anyway, so um, so yeah, what are we going to talk about this time? Oh, was that the only thing you wanted to add? Oh uh, well, you know, he also mentioned that um, that there were some exaggerated um, accounts of the work that he had done, and that that was you know unfortunate. Well, that's what people always say. I mean, people, most good people will say that, oh, you know, I'm just doing, you know, I'm just a little guy, somebody doing something here. I'm not, not, well, don't, don't make it too big. It's tough because I think he's found what I found, which is that it's so hard to get people to pay attention to this issue. Mm-hmm. And it's very easy to sensationalize it. So my paper, for example, was called Killed by Code. Mm-hmm. That's pretty sensationalist. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I mean, I think it's sort of the same thing. It's really easy to go down that road because it's not too far but you, know, you said in the last show that people have been killed, so it's accurate. Well, I, people have been killed through software, software mal- malfunctions and implantable medical devices. Yep, but sounds not- about right to me. <laughs> so that the, the, it's accurate. All right. Well, I mean, so it's just accurate. I mean, yes, it's sensationalist. I agree well, with that. Well, killed by but code, it's an accurate sure. You know, but 
it, right. It's it's easy to to make it to to sort of you know bend towards exaggeration. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I don't. Is he saying that he feels that people did that to him, or was are you sure he just I think wasn't he being humble? Like he he said things sort of along those lines, and um, you know, and the the press ran the, rampant with the it. The press always does. I mean, I mean, especially technology press. press. The tech press again becomes our topic of discussion. Well, yeah, but they always exa- They always try to make it sensationalist. Anything they'll, they'll try to make anything sensationalist. That's true. So I think I, it's kind of the press generally, isn't it? I. I think that's yeah. I think it's the press generally. And, it's really and the, sad. The now tech that press I know. is more link bait, link bait led than the main press. I mean, of course, the main press is moving towards it because newspapers, news right. going out of business, all these sort of things, or they're going to online only. I have so to say that link baiting will become more of an issue as yeah. the print media disappears. And I think that's that when people lament the death of the print media. And it, it, while advertising has always been an issue with regard to uh, newspapers, it's it's much worse on the internet than it is with print media as far as advertisers controlling what you publish. I have to say, trying to advocate for coverage of a particular issue has made me a lot better informed about the way the press works generally, and it's made me really disheartened about the press generally and what the mainstream press will cover, how the tech press operates. Yeah, I mean, Fab is actually, uh, just to give a shout-out to Linux Outlaws, Fab is going totally to... We should totally give a shout-out to Fab, because I've enjoyed his GNOME articles recently. Well, and, and, and so since he's talked a lot on Linux Outlaws um, about going to work for the H and trying... I mean, he tries to be a good journalist, and he's actually, you know, I've been very... He's written to me to get off-the-record information, and I've trusted him to what's off-the-record. He's been treating off-the-record correctly, you know, and, and most... Which you think is, is, like, is a given, but it's not. Oh, it's not with these tech it's people. It's amazing. No, but do I I, I have no problem giving giving the tech journalists, the tech fab, and a few others. Um, I have no problem giving them stuff off the record because I know they're going to keep it off the record, right? Yeah. And, they, and and the press. But it's, a, it's an exception it. in the tech press that people mm. will keep off the record, off the record. Yeah. Which is amazing. Also, embargo. You know, like if you ask for an embargo, I've I've known of situations oh, really? where people I've have never had ahead. problems with embargo. Embargo oh, really? people have always respected. That's I, great. I, that, that's I've never had somebody not respect the tech press embargo. But I have had people off the record and and deep background and all, all these things. So embargo is just when you, um, I guess we should we should explain what it is. Embargo okay. is just when you you give a reporter something in advance and you say I'm going to give you this information, but you can't publish it before this right. date. And that way, the person can write their article in advance and be be ready to go whenever you make your announcement. But they agree that they're not going to yeah. they're not going to basically let the cat out of the bag before you're ready to announce. Right. Classic place where conservancy, as an example, uses embargo is when we're announcing a new project. I'll often send a couple of reporters, um, hey, in 24 hours, 48 hours, there's going to be an announcement about a new project joining conservancy. Um, but we obviously want the announcement to come first from Conservancy, not from some article. So you give them a date when you're going to do it. And that's the date I put the website live. And then it just turns out that the articles go live at the same time. Yeah, we do exactly the same thing at Gnome with the releases. We send yeah. journalists the release notes yeah, and they, stuff they when they're in draft them. form. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so, but yeah, I've never had a problem with embargoed uh, stuff, but I have had plenty of. I just basically don't do off the record with most journalists. I just assume everything I say to journalists uh, you is on the record. You can't, now. you can't, you uh, can't. But they they should want it because it, we, we kind of walk off on tangent. But they should want it because off the record is valuable to them. The reason it exists was so that they could find out things that people wouldn't otherwise tell you. And and deep background is important too. Deep background. That by the way, the difference, as I understand it, I could be wrong about this, but the difference between deep background and off the record 
is off the record. They can actually use you as a source. So when you see an article say, sources say, and the, and the typical journalistic rules, you need two independent sources to be able to, to go to print with something. I mean, nobody follows this anymore, but this was the old rule. Deep background means basically, I'm going to tell you this, but you can't count me as a source on it. You're going to have to go find two other sources who right, will also right. say it. But it's useful to have that information because then they know where to look. Right, exactly. If I give you deep background, I, I, like one thing I might give you on deep background is, if you talk to these two people, I think they're going to tell you the following thing. And then they say, oh, I want to write a story about that. They go to those two people. Then they have their two sources. And I'm the one who pointed them to two people, but I'm not connected at all. But if you, they the go story. and talk to that other person, uh, those two people, and those two people don't say anything, they then they, they can't. Well, under the normal uh, journalistic ethics. Under the ethical, ethical rules. But yeah. anyway, back so, to the topic at hand. So, yes. Um, well, actually, one other point oh, okay. of order I wanted to make. And, and I really should point have done this order. a long time. I, I'm sorry. I'm thinking of Robert Rules of Order. I'm sorry. Uh, a point, a, an important point that we should have been making on this podcast for a long time that we've never made, and it's it's really my fault because Karen, you didn't even you're going to be surprised when I say this because you didn't even know because I worked this out mostly for us. But OSU OSL has been handling the bandwidth for us ba- since we started. And I've never actually mentioned that oh on the show. Oh my gosh, you're right. And it's really wrong that I never mentioned that. They're donating the bandwidth have, yeah. to us. And I know that, that the Thank folks you, over OSU, at OSU OSL OSL. are doing some fundraising right now. And yeah, and we always say donate to nonprofits. We've never mentioned them by name. But they are also a nonprofit. They're a 501c3 charity. They do infrastructure for free software projects and all sorts of great things. Um, they, they have all sorts of VPS hosting. Lance over there has contributed to Gennetti and other VPS hosting technologies. You know, they're, they're a free software org that's building sysadmin infrastructure for free software projects. And they've helped us by giving a bandwidth for the show. And so I, I hope that, I hope that people have noticed in the URLs, they actually get, they go to fife.us and then they get redirected immediately to OSUSL because it's their bandwidth. So I don't want to commit you because you're the one who writes the show notes now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you, we we have a link in the show. I'll link to the donate page. Yeah, yeah and, and you should you. you should you should contribute to them, and they're part of why. I mean, I mean, just like Dan Lynch, who volunteers his time, they're volunteering their bandwidth, and and we thank Dan a lot, and we we always appreciate Dan's work uh, editing the show. But OSUSL every week is or every two weeks is providing the bandwidth for us. It's so actually they're providing for us twenty four seven, and it right, took, right, we, we, right, we right, use right. a lot of it every two weeks. Yeah, well, thank you for mentioning that, Bradley. That's yeah, really, yeah, really I didn't good mean point. to mention that. And I talked to Lance at uh, at the Summer Code Mentor Summit, and he he's you know he's he's very honest that he's doing a lot of fundraising because they, they a lot of people don't realize they don't they don't get tons of money from the university they i thought they spun, did they did for a long time but they've been spun off and they do have to do their own fundraising they, oh. they get some but it's it's not like any more than we get from any going foundation or conservancy gets from any donor it's not right. like they're just right. being bankrolled uh, by osu I, I don't know the history so i don't know if they used to be but they certainly aren't now they get grants from all different places including osu but they're they're not just paid for i mean i mean think about it I and mean, they're doing stuff for the free software community and it's not like a university is just going to pay a, a group of sysadmins to do stuff for sysadmin for the free software community right. indefinitely i mean it, it kind of makes sense that they that they would have to spin it off so yeah so i hope folks will donate to them and and uh and you and they're always they always have they always have service also lance mentioned to me another thing that they could use um is if people have access to coloc facilities um where where machines could be installed they always have a need for that around the around the globe so if you have a coloc facility or you run one or you work for one um t- get in touch with lance over at osu osl you can email us if you don't have his contact info and and um, he can always use that he said uh, if, if there's if there's colloques by his base cool. anywhere so um so that's an- another way to donate if you work for a coloc facility great 
So okay, so okay. I, I didn't want to mention that. So yeah, we should get you. to the topic now. Um, uh, so we're, we're finally going to get to the show where we talk about Oracle v Google, and we're sorry, so sorry that it's taken us so long to get to here. But well, uh, but but the case is up for appeal, mm-hmm. and um, I don't think we're gonna. I don't think we've heard the end of it yet. Yeah, and and as Karen keeps saying, every time I bring up again, we should talk about this. Uh, she, you, we always point out that there's not that much to talk about, really. Right. I think there really isn't that much. And to talk I, about. and I think, but I think the reason that people want to talk about it is because it is so rare that a court talks about copyright on software, particularly at that at that level. Because what is this? This is the which district level is this? Is this well, it's it, no, but it's the it's just the the lowest district level, right? right. So, but yeah, even there, but it, or it, well, yeah, sort of, except that there's splits in the districts about yeah. about a lot of issues about copyright on software that are exist to this day, and we've talked about them in the context right. of um, derivative works in the past, mm. and so this is just one one ruling in one geographic area. Mm. So you know, courts do look to other you know circuits do look to other circuit you know to to other courts to see what they've decided and it makes a big difference but on the other hand and until these things get sorted out on appeal it's not necessarily indicative of how another court would decide the matter so one of the things that i liked about it though is that i mean i understand a court won't necessarily have to wait for other courts to decide but but even just reading this decision at this court level the thing that lawyers or actually judges are really good at and basically any lawyer is because lawyers are just uh judges are just lawyers who uh, became judges. They separate out issues very well that somebody tries to intertwine. Like Oracle tried to intertwine a bunch of issues of different, uh, that shouldn't have been put together. And the judge did what, what the judge would used to call when I went to Catholic school, because I'm very Jesuit educated. They, they call this thing a process of discernment, where you try to separate out different moral issues into different places and then try to analyze them separately. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, and I think that, you know, this is one of the reasons why I had, one of the reasons why I had, um, actually wanted to go to law school to begin with was because I thought that this kind of logical analysis was, um, you know, it was very appealing to me. But, um, what I discovered was that a lot of these decisions were not necessarily based on a logical, um, assessment of fact and law, but instead were (laughs) decisions made by prominent people. Um, with whatever logic they could use to justify the decision that they wanted to make. Well, so that's you, one of the things I hate about the law. Well, if you look at that historically, I guess that's probably true, that there are a lot of decisions like that. But I think the judge did a good job at this one, because actually Oracle was the one in the case trying to do that. Yeah, no, like, I think the judge did a good, a really good thing, a really good um, job at this. And I can't remember, we actually had some technical difficulties, so we're re-recording just a little piece of this. So I can't remember if I said that the, the decision was very well written. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think I think you're right about that, it, and it's I, and I think it's easy for people to read. I actually think it's easier for computer geeks who, um, who who aren't good, who basically who don't know much about the law, to read it than it would be for people about the law who know nothing about computing, because there's actually a lot of details about how software was developed, particularly that range check thing. Yeah, I thought the judge did a really good job at, at at all this, and sort of he he really understood what APIs were and explained it really really well. Um, well, yeah, the, the, and well, but I think I think well, the first thing that I think that was useful that he did was was he tried. Well, first of all, he threw out the whole patent thing that the, this wasn't a decision about patents; it was a decision about the copyright, and the patent issue was handled completely separately by a different decision, which basically I guess was a judgment. But then on the copyright side, he started with that range check thing, 
which that was like a, that was I mean that was like a, a function that did something and it was like long enough to be copyrightable. It was relatively yeah. long, right? No, I mean it was pretty short. It was only like eight or nine lines of code. Okay, so I thought it was longer, but I, I mean, I, <laughs> <laughs> can I see? Can I just say that this was this is part that we're re-recording and we're really bad at sort of just reproducing what we said before. And Bradley was sure that it was fifty or sixty lines of code, and I was. I think I said twenty or thirty. No, you said fifty or sixty, and now there's no recording we'll to back it up. But know. I am positive, and you know, and then I was actually wondering if he had deliberately, re, you know, oh, but the battery the, failed the file. on the laptop. But anyway, so um, <laughs> but anyway, it, so, it was, so, it's so, so it was, rare that it, I remember but, something. But, you know. but even nine lines can be copyrightable. I mean, it's actually yes, it doesn't yes. matter if it's nine or it fifty. Could, but this is a weird one. I mean, unless you work for the Eclipse Foundation, and then anything under fifty lines is magically uncopyrightable. Um, but but, but this, if you work for anywhere that's sane, well, um, even talk, nine lines can be copyrightable. Well, they all, it just depends on what those lines are. Right. As we always they say, can be or can't be. That lawyerly, it depends. But you know, and the the whole range check thing, as I recall, was like a really weird situation where the guy who had worked at Oracle then left Oracle and or was working maybe as a contractor I can't son. remember he was working at oh, Sun. Sun sorry yeah. and then he left and then he actually wound up you know re-implementing well, or I mean, we're reporting the code. Well, yeah. it's 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 an open question whether he rewrote it from scratch. And I mean, he did. There is the there is the fact of the matter that something that that's straightforward. I, I don't know. I mean, people say that like things like bubble sort wouldn't be copyrightable because you, if I, if you and I sat down to write bubble sort together, but both separately, we generate basically the same code because we all know what bubble sort does, and there's really only one way to write bubble sort. And so it could be the case that range check wasn't. Co- I mean, he didn't actually say this in the decision, but it could say could be there's really kind of only one way to write it anyway. Yeah, I mean, and what he's, he says in the decision is that you know there's only one way to actually implement it, and if you if you include a lot of unnecessary things. Which is, I think, some of the Nintendo case law. But if you include a lot of unnecessary things, those unnecessary things might be copyrightable. Um, but if you just stick to an elegant solution for what you need, for, for some things, it won't be copyrightable. Which has always been the case, and something that we've always held to be the case. And actually, um, I'd point out that we published, when, when you and I were both at SFLC, we published um, an analysis of the... Um, uh, the uh, I, Blanking right now, but it was the um, F5K. Are you talking about the um, copyrightability memo? No, I'm not talking about the copyrightability memo. I'm talking about the actual evaluation of the code base. Oh, that's true. That we had published. We, we did and, write that. Yeah, and we talked about header files and what yeah. things are copyrightable and which aren't. And, you know, we sort of, you know, we said in the memo, I, I remember I looked at it at the time, you know, at the time when I read the, the decision. Um, but I remember I looked and we said, you know, the state of the, of the law is unclear. Um, but we don't think it should be copyrightable. Well, I think it's that, a little bit different, but it's the same analysis. I think that range check here, he pretty much set it aside and said that it's just not enough. Even if uh, the funny thing was, is that, that the guy was planning to resubmit it as part of the JCA process. So he was going to resubmit the code to be part of the free software version of Java anyway. So it's not really clear if Google went to resubmit it and it was licensed freely, then, then, I mean, I mean, I guess that you could argue it had to be licensed JP, GPL instead of Apache or something like that, which, which the argument could be made. But again, we're down to nine lines. Right, right. Well, so that's he, what he says that in the scope of the entire code base, this is just a, this is just not worth considering and it's a, it's a red herring. So they, um, they, 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 Focus, well, they, the judge, focused on, well, it's probably his clerks as well, so there probably is a <laughs> That's they. true. There is a they. Um, <laughs> they, they focused on this question of API copyrightability because it's clear that 
Sun, before Oracle, wrote this very large API, created it and, and documented it. And the thing that I think is most important to, to and, and that was actually talked really directly about in the decision is the clarity of the document that describes the API, of course, is copyrightable. Mm-hmm. And writing down what an API does and explaining it in plain English, that text is copyrightable. The question is whether the order of the arguments, whether you need a function named foo and it has to have int, int, char as three mm-hmm. arguments, whether that is copyrightable. The, not, not, not the, not the written words, uh, you know, void foo, <laughs> open paren, int, uh, int, comma, int, comma, char, but the, the point, the idea that if you need that to be compatible, is that copyrightable in some way? And when you sit down and you write something that's void foo int char char, did you infringe copyright because you tried to make it compatible with the API? Yep. That's the question he's actually considering. And this is where it's a big, it's a huge relief that he came down where he did. Well, and, th- and that's what I've been saying to people like crazy is that people have, because people have loved, I mean, people that, that are unfriendly to the GPL have loved to say that, oh, this shows that, that your whole thing about derivative works are covered by GPL is completely eviscerated by... I don't understand how anybody can read that decision and go so far as to say that. I'll ask it's, Larry Rosen. He said it publicly. I know. I just, I don't understand. I really don't understand what that's based on. I did see he said, you know, it's the, anyone who's read this decision can see that. But yeah. this decision is very narrow. Yeah, I, I don't, I mean, I mean, Larry's had this, uh, Larry Rosen specifically has had this view for some time and I've never agreed with it, but he just has added this decision to his arsenal of things that, um, he says say that, which I don't think it does because there's a real difference between, um, making something compatible in an API sort of sense versus, versus actually copying so, someone's code and then, and then, ma- and then using a part Create, of it and creating then creating a derivative yeah, work with as, it. As it. Right. Well, the thing is, is that, is that if, 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 if Oracle, if they could have shown, if Oracle could have shown that the, that other than range check, which was already set aside, that there was actual code mm-hmm. that matched like line for line and many, many lines of code between the two implementations, that would have been a very different set yeah, of facts. Yeah, I mean, you know, you can kind of infer that from some of the things that Alsop is saying, that, you know, that maybe, uh, you know, that, that if there were a greater degree of copying, the analysis might be different. Mm-hmm. Um, but we really don't know how he would have come out if it was a straight, you know, if it was mm-hmm. one of those really interesting it, derivative works questions that we talk about all the, the time. The funny thing is this free software as a movement needed this to be true from the beginning. And I think that's why Karen goes on about this is, there's not much to say because if this were, if he hadn't ruled this way, if he had ruled that this thing were copyrightable, all of GNU would have infringed AT&T's copyrights from the start because GNU was re-implementation API, basically function for function, um, a uh, 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 program for program, like like little program mm. for little program of Unix, like like it's POSIX compliant. Which well, actually, you have to set POSIX correct to make a POSIX compliant. That, that's a long story about that. Um, but good story, but not relevant here. Uh, the point is that it had to be compatible with Unix. That was RMS's big idea. Was he was he said, I don't like Unix, but it's the most popular operating system today, 1984. So GNU has to work just like Unix because it's the only way we're going to get users. And if, if it had been true that APIs were copyrightable in the sense that this case is talking about, if this case had been the other way and existed then, he wouldn't have that option. Couldn't have implemented a, a Unix-compatible mm-hmm. operating system. It would not have been allowed because it would have infringed AT&T's copyrights because AT&T would have a copyright on a command called cut that if you implement something that has cut and takes the arguments of cut in the following ways, that that's copyrightable. I mean, so there was a different copyright climate then in the 80s. If it were the climate that, you know, in the late 90s, maybe things would have been different actually. 
Oh, you think RMS would have been advised by lawyers? Well, maybe you shouldn't. Maybe you shouldn't do this. Right? We've gotten a lot. We've gotten. Yeah. We've moved a long way. The yeah. copyright maximalists have really, made, despite all of the you know file sharing <laughs> and you know, and the idea that sharing is okay and creating a, a commons. Yeah. Aside from that, we really the copyright maximalists have really made a lot of ground. Well, and and this was this is why I, I, I attribute it to both Jeremy Allison and Michael Meeks. They both said it independently. I don't know who said it first that that, that that's what makes GPL like judo because it takes the that force of copyright maximalism and uses it to liberate software. Um, and I, I like that analogy because I, because mm. I think it's right. And, and, and so as these things get more maximalist and, and it's not surprising that those who want to oppose copyleft want to take this and say that, oh, it eviscerates copyleft. Copyleft doesn't do what it said it did. I think it's just wrong. It's, it's, it's not the same. If you want to go implement a cut, which Busybox did, I obviously did under GPL as well, but implements a new cut, it's not infringing GNU's copyrights, it's not infringing ATT's copyrights, just because it supports a Unix command that was always been there. Yeah. Uh, because it's just supporting the, the interface of that Unix command. It's not supporting, it's not copying the code, it's not, it's not, it's not, uh, there's lots of things it's not doing that are derivative. It's, it's only saying, oh, this, these arguments have to be in this order and they have to have these command line options or these, these arguments to this function have to be there. Yeah, it's really interesting because I, I find that I always have that tension that you're talking about, about, um, copyright maximalism versus copyright reform. Mm-hmm. You know, when I work a question copyright, um, makes me advocate for copyright reform, um, and ways of weakening copyright. And, um, and at the same time, my work in free software benefits from strong copyright, um, because that makes copyleft stronger. And this is just one of those areas where, you know, the right decision was made. You know, a stronger, a stronger copyright in, in, in no way in this situation would have helped free software. Yeah, I, I think I think that's basically true. I, I don't think, and I think the other problem with the case, it, it actually reminds me a little bit of how people read this. Remember, this case is not about patents, but how people read the subject line of a patent and think that they can infer then what is patented mm-hmm. without reading the claims. A lot of people read APIs are not copyrightable and didn't read the decision. And so the thing that a, that a developer calls an API, it, it varies, right? It, it's it's sometimes people say. I use the API to mean I linked in this library, right, with my program, right, right? and 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 view that. Well, that's creating a derivative work for sure. The, the, if you but but to say you use the API, meaning I clean room re-implemented it from scratch, just 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 making it uh, making it API compatible. That's very different than linking in the library that implements it. And so I, I think that this is a case where discernment is useful to understand. Wow, these two things are really different, and when you munch them together, it causes a, a moral crisis. Um, to really to bring my judgment yeah, education. No, I would say, no, I would say just to like put this into perspective, like this is, you know, this is just one decision in one jurisdiction. So, you know, in the United States, the circuits differ on copyright matters, including, you know, all of the law about derivative works is, um, oh, I'm looking on your screen yeah. and I see abstraction filtration. Yeah, he, he, he talked about all those different, yeah. he actually went through all the circuits, even not, even not his yeah. own. And looked at well, they the usually look at the other circuits, but uh, they don't have to necessarily follow them. Usually, when the circuits when the the circuit decisions are aligned, then that you can pretty much rely on that being what the law is. But the circuits do differ, and they have in the past on on um, derivative works questions and on other questions related to software and how copyright applies to them. Mm-hmm. And I think that you know that this case doesn't speak for more than it speaks for. I guess is what I wanted to say. And on top of that, I, we, the Oracle has already announced that they're planning to appeal. Mm-hmm. So we actually hoped that we could get, um, you know, I have a friend who was worked on the Oracle side. And of course, we know 
we know representatives of the Google side. So we were hoping maybe we could have a show where we would have lawyers from both sides. But because it's on appeal, we can't we can't do that right now. Maybe Even eventually. if we're on appeal, we probably still have trouble getting them both. <laughs> well, I got one, one gave me the preliminary okay. Ah, I'm I pretty see. sure. And that was the one I didn't think I'd be able to get. Ah, so. Well, the other thing I want to, the last thing I want to mention is, uh, it, uh, just to put a finer point on why we need the decision to be this way, why it doesn't affect uh, copyleft. Uh, so uh, to speak for briefly for a conservancy project, I talked to the wine developers about this. Wine's a member of conservancy. And they've been worried for years that Microsoft was going to get aggressive like Oracle over yep. on the API because I was they, mention wine. Yeah. they re-implement the API. And, and as, uh, as as Stefan Doschinger, one of the developers, said, yeah, yeah I, we met there somebody said something to be like, uh, yeah, we were all pretty happy about that decision. Yeah, I because, bet. Because it made it certain that, that what they're doing is, which we've always believed. I mean, obviously, wine wouldn't have started. The community would have shunned them and said, don't do this. It's dangerous if we didn't believe it was allowed. But if you just make, take an API and re-implement it from scratch and don't take any code from the people who implemented it first, right. everybody well, that, believes that that's permitted. Right. And we always have. Right. We, and that we've made this case that. a lot cleaner was that both parties um, agreed to that fact. Oh, okay. That, I, that other I than know. range check that the code was not, you know, was not copied. It was rewritten. Oh, I see. Oracle yeah. conceded that point. Yeah, I mean, I guess there was no proof. That's probably why they had to. It's, I'm surprised they did, but I guess, I guess if they didn't, they couldn't prove that it was, that it was copied and there was no similarities. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it was just pretty clear. Yeah. It so. reminds me of Sko's big similarity. Remember the malloc function? Oh my gosh, malloc! Which was BSD licensed anyway. <laughs> That was their big smoking gun. I don't know if you remember that. I don't remember Sco that. pulled out the ma- it was it was it was actually not Malik's. I think it was S break, but uh, which is the function underneath that Malik uses. Uh, but they put up this code on a slide and they they changed the font to Wingdits or what do you call them in Windows? The the I don't the, know. The, yeah, you don't use Windows either. <laughs> Wrong person to ask. Um, I used to. I should. Yeah, but they was like the Wingdats or something like they they just oh, changed yeah. the font. So if you just typed it all in in Wingdits or again or whatever, and then changed the font back to something real, you saw what code it was. Like they mm. thought they had. Uh, Fixated it enough. That's hilarious. But it was that somebody just did that, and it turned out it was a function that had appeared in books and been BSD licensed as part of books on how to implement Unix. And so that was their big smoking gun. That this is our code, and it's BSD licensed. So um, I think that the this case is interesting. It's a great read. It's um it's a really nice insight as to how the law, you know, how how judges and lawyers I- interpret. Issues relevant. Well, not to software. most. He's a particularly knowledgeable judge. No, about no, but software. right. Well, that's what I was going to say is that he that it's it's a smart decision, you know, by someone who understands, and so it kind of gives you an interesting lens into how these things might be considered. Um, yeah. So I, I think, that, but that said, I, I'd say all in all, nothing much new. Yeah, and so and so, I, I feel bad now because we we built this up as we, we were did do and the we're show, sorry. but it, we really shouldn't have. Been, I mean, Karen, it's actually my fault because Karen kept telling me that this was not a big deal and. Not like it wasn't this earth shattering thing, and so well. Forth. And at the same time, I hadn't actually read the full decision. <laughs> to be honest, for a couple of months, and I was sort of like, "Let's." Yeah, I have I'm to giving read all it. this credit, and you're just like, "I know." I have to be honest. You're though. Like, yeah, yeah, this is what I mean. So I'm saying earlier about how people like they 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 um they, they're self deprecating and they they like they, they're humble. You're being humble unnecessarily. I think. I think you were right about that. This is not the big earth shattering thing that everybody thought it was. It's just mm. confirmation. It's basically just a, a check mark, a confirmation of stuff that everybody, at least in the free software world, believed. I'm sure some of these evil copyright mongers didn't believe it, but also I'm awesome. Yeah. You are. I agree. <laughs> I, I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I think you're awesome too. I think it's a, I good got issues with then. this fallback mode stuff, you know, that no, not to troll, but yeah, not to troll. Oh, a little bit. pipe not good enough for you. <laughs> 
I don't know. I haven't tried it yet. I don't know. I hope it works. Um, uh, I hope it's not too slow for you. Well, I'm still using GNOME 2 anyway. You know, right. I wrote a blog post about yeah. this. Anyway, topic for another show. Uh, yeah, I guess we could do that next show. Maybe. Maybe, maybe. Uh, Karen, Karen doesn't want me to troll her about GNOME stuff yeah. during our, sh- our podcast. I understand. All right. Reason Freedom is produced by Dan Lynch of Pod Factory and can be found at podfactory.org. Thanks to Mike Tarantino for our theme music. This episode of Reason Freedom is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 United States license. You can follow Reason Freedom, Bradley, and Karen on Identica and also read Bradley's and Karen's blogs. Links can be found on the Reason Freedom website, faith.us. That's f a i f.us. Staying alive, staying alive, ah, 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 staying alive. Come on, Bradley. I'm not going to sing. <laughs>